0: Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. In this series, we're bringing together leading thinkers to ask one of life's most important, substantial questions. What does it mean to live wisely and well? We'll get expert insight on neurobiology, mortality, loneliness, the meaning of an intellectual life, and more. In our second episode of the series, Arthur Brooks considers how we should view the second half of our life. He'll discuss his book, Strength to Strength, which weaves together philosophy and research on human flourishing to illuminate the inescapable fact of change as we grow older and to offer practical guidance on flourishing in new stages of life. About half of the population after about age 65 gets happier for
1: the rest of their lives. There's another half that gets less happy for the rest of their lives. We break up into two groups after that point and the happier part is not the strivers, generally speaking. Strivers tend to struggle. You find that people who are identified as the high performers, they're more likely to be more frustrated with their lives at the end of their lives. There are many famous case studies of this, as a matter of fact. And I thought, well, that's when the fear came in, quite frankly, because I've worked pretty hard in my life, and so have all the people who are watching us today.
0: This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from February of 2022. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Sheree Harder.
2: I'm so excited to introduce our guest today, who we're actually welcoming back. We've been able to host him before. Someone who has used his varied and creative career to make a study of human happiness and flourishing. And in his latest work, he makes a provocative argument that draws upon both extensive social science research, as well as ancient wisdom that flourishing in the second half of life looks quite different than it does in the first half, that the stars and strivers of early adulthood often flounder as middle age approaches, and that the way to the good life lies not in doubling down on successful past efforts to acquire, achieve, and dominate, but embarking on an altogether different path that includes embracing weakness, deepening connections, properly ordering our loves, and even worshiping God. It's an argument, both deeply challenging and deeply hopeful. And it's hard to imagine someone who can make it with more energy, eloquence, or expertise than our guest today, Arthur Brooks. Arthur is an economist and social scientist who serves as a professor of leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School and on the faculty of Harvard Business School after a remarkable decade of service as the president of the American Enterprise Institute, one of the world's most influential think tanks. He's a columnist for The Atlantic, the host of the podcast, The Art of Happiness with Arthur Brooks, the recipient of six honorary degrees, the author of dozens of scholarly journals and the textbook, Social Entrepreneurship, was named one of Fortune Magazine's 50 world's greatest leaders, and did all of this after starting his career as a professional classical French hornist. He's also the best-selling author of 12 different books, including his recent book, Love Your Enemies, and of course, his new release, the brand new number one New York Times seller, From Strength to Strength, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Arthur, welcome.
1: Thank you, Cherie. Well, how lovely to be with you and to all of our friends in the Trinity Forum from all around the world. Thank you for joining us. Uh, What an opportunity to talk about happiness, everybody's favorite topic. And for those of you who are joining us from Ukraine, uh, we join our prayers to yours for a, a, a fast resolution to this and that you'll stay safe with your families.
2: So you start this fascinating book with a rather astounding story of eavesdropping that illustrated just how hard it is to go from strength to strength in life. And that often it is the stars and the strivers and the whiz kids who are those who sort of struggle the most as they approach middle age and beyond. Why is it that the whiz kids often struggle more than the others in adjusting to the second half of life?
1: Well, Sheree, let me relate the story of the eavesdropping that stimulated the study. It's a funny thing as a social scientist. You know, I, I, I'm a, like any other social scientist. I have a lot of data that I'm looking at. I'm trying to look at the most interesting questions, but, but the world really is my laboratory. And I almost always start a piece of research on the basis of an experience. That's something that really stimulates my imagination. Better yet, something that makes me afraid about my own life. And that's what happened to me about eight years ago. I was on a plane doing what I always did. I was running a think tank and running from place to place, feeling very important and put upon. And I was tapping away on my laptop on on an airplane late at night one night. And I heard a couple talking behind me. I could tell it was a man and a woman. I could tell by their voices, they were elderly. And I, I assumed it was a married couple because it was an intimate conversation. I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, but wow, I heard the husband telling his wife. I didn't quite make out his words, but I could tell by her answers that he was confessing that he might as well be dead that people had forgotten about him, that no one paid attention to him or, or, or even had, had any sort of appreciation for him anymore. And I thought, wow, this is a guy who hasn't lived up probably to his own expectations. He didn't get maybe the education he wanted or the business he wanted to start and, and now he's old and it feels like the, the best possible, possible years are behind him. Well, we got to Washington Dulles Airport and landed and the lights went on and I turned around just to get a look and it was one of the most famous men in the world. This is somebody that we would all recognize. And and in fact, somebody who's probably going to do 10 times more than I'll ever do with my life. And I thought to myself, I'm a happiness specialist. This is literally the subject that I've taught over the years. And this is something that I need to understand. I would think that somebody who did this much would bank that satisfaction and and, and enjoy the rest of his life. But on the contrary, his, his feats of daring and heroism from decades past now leave him bereft with a sense of of emptiness. It was his past success, ironically, that that, that makes him feel like a lesser person, less valuable today. So I went on and I started looking at the basic data on it. and, And in point of fact, it's true exactly what you said. About half of the population after about age 65 gets happier for the rest of their lives. There's another half that gets less happy for the rest of their lives. We break up into two groups after that point. And the happier part is not the strivers, generally speaking. Strivers tend to struggle. You find that people who are identified as the high performers, they're more likely to be more frustrated with their lives at the end of their lives. There are many many famous case studies of this, as a matter of fact. And I thought, well, that's when the fear came in, quite frankly, because I've worked pretty hard in my life and so have all the people who are watching us today. What can I do? What are the happiness habits that I can learn from the happiest older people Let's just say I want to build my happiness 401k. What can I do to get on that upper branch? And I found actually the seven big habits that the happiest people engage in that gives them the highest likelihood of getting happier and being happier at 75 than they ever were even at 25.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, we definitely want to dig into some of those, but you alluded to this, and I am sort of curious. There is, of course, a great deal of social science research compressed within your book. And I've heard you say that for almost any social scientist, research is essentially me-search. And so I'm curious what led you to write that book and what you were yourself searching for.
1: Well, quite frankly, at the time that I was writing this book, I wasn't very happy. I had everything I'd ever dreamed of. I'd gotten my heart's desire, at least my worldly heart's desire. And I was engaging in my daily prayers to ask God to give me some wisdom, to give me some discernment. Now discernment's a funny business in a Christian sense. Mm -hmm. Discernment is actually not about, and, and I'm talking about Ignatian spirituality, for example, but in Protestant traditions as well. It's not a question of finding out what you're supposed to do. It's actually trying to figure out what exactly it is that you want. God puts desire on our hearts. And one of the interesting things that I find in my work as a social scientist is that people pretty much get what they want. And so Mm -hmm. when things don't turn out right, it's because they wanted the wrong thing. So discernment is to say, Mm -hmm. what, Lord, should I want? Please help me to want the right thing. And that's what I was asking God about. Now, we all know, those of us who are practicing Christians, we all know that woe be unto you if you pray to God to show you your path and you don't mean it because he's going to show you your path. (laughs) And that's what I was praying when I heard this man on the plane who became inadvertently my teacher. He set me on the road to figuring out what I could do with the second half of my life so that I could be happier, so that I could serve more. Mm -hmm. This is the reason that I think that this was laid out before me to do the research that led to the seven habits of people who get happier later in life. Yeah.
2: Now you, you talk a lot about happiness and you are a happiness expert. The Bible talks a lot more about joy. Yeah. And just so as we sort of start our discussion, I'm curious about how you would define happiness in this context relative to joy.
1: Happiness is a, is, as a social science concept is often mistaken for a feeling. But that's a mistake, just as saying that my Thanksgiving dinner is the smell of the turkey. It's not. the, The smell of the turkey comes from the turkey. The turkey is the Thanksgiving dinner. And happiness is not a feeling. Happiness is a combination, we could say, of three macronutrients. Just as food is made up of protein, carbohydrates, and fat, happiness is made up of three things, enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. That's really the three things. And if you don't have them in abundance and in balance, you won't feel happy about your life. You won't get the happy feelings as it turns out. And so when I'm working with students and I, I teach an oversubscribed course at Harvard called Leadership and Happiness, and they'll come into my office hours and say, okay, okay, doctor, you know what's, what, what ails me? And I'll, I'll dig into their three macronutrients and find if they're too stoic or too epicurean. And, and I can do all these types of things for sure. And so this is the way the social scientists see it. In the biblical sense, however, it's more transcendental than all that, because what do we believe as Christians? What do we believe is the promise of the Bible? We, we believe in the beatific vision. Look, what are we working for? What is the, as, as we Catholics like to say, that the mass is the source and summit of the Christian life. What is it? It's a moment of, of lucidity. It's a moment where you can glimpse paradise. We all know that feeling as Christians where as we pray or as we worship, and especially as we worship together, something catches in our throat because it is this moment of the realization that the beatific vision lays before us. What do we believe that heaven is? All satisfaction without actually going back to the way that you were. It's the happiness that comes and doesn't go. It's the tide that comes in and doesn't go out. Look. Life is not that way on this earth. Our brains are not wired that way. So we need to understand the mechanics and the science and the neuromodulators and all of the the, the parts of the brain that go into it. But what do we believe as Christians? When all of this falls away, we see the face of God. And then true happiness is ours, which we call joy.
2: Yeah. You know, you talk in the book, not only about the habits of happiness, but about many of the things that impede our happiness. And one of the things I thought was so interesting is you described them not as, as errors or even character flaws, but as idols, in a sense. Yeah. And you even mentioned a rather intense dinner party practice that you and your wife have sometimes, where you kind of use Thomas Aquinas' naming of money, power, pleasure, and honor you know, as the chief idols and ask everyone to, to identify theirs, which is a, a fascinating practice. But would love to kind of hear you talk a little bit more about that idea of misplaced love being the key causes of the impeding of our own happiness.
1: Yeah. So remember that we just talked a minute ago about the nature of discernment. The nature of discernment is actually trying to uncover desire and align it with right desire. That's the nature of discernment. And this is really about love. What do I love? What should I love? You know, and our prayers are to say, you know, make me, Lord, make me love the right things. Why? Because because the world sells you a bill of goods. You know, this is what Thomas Aquinas talked about in his Summa Theologica. And in the Summa, he, he talks about the fact that there are these four things in life that look kind of like God. Look, we all want divinity. We're all, we're all drawn toward truth, but let's be honest. The truth is pretty inconvenient. You know, the, the truth is it's like religion, all the rules. One-sided conversations, people don't like it, right? And so they go through these things that have these divine characteristics, but they're counterfeit, they're fool's gold. He -hmm. defines them as money, power, pleasure, and honor, by which he doesn't mean, I mean, I have a son in the Marines who serves with honor, but that's not what he means, he means fame. And for those of us who are actually trying to do something and be admired by particular people, it's prestige, which is this localized fame. This is what we're driven to. The world tells us it's good, Mother Nature tells us it's good. Our brains are wired to that because newsflash, Mother Nature doesn't care if we're happy. Mother Nature just wants us to pass on our genes and be successful here in the mortal coil until we die at whatever particular age. That's our job. Our job as Christians, our job as ethical individuals who love each other is to bring out happiness. That's That's a different kind of responsibility. And if you follow the way your brain works, which is to say the way Madison Avenue and the entertainment industry and the whole world works, you're going to pursue money, power, pleasure, and fame. These are not terrible things, but never as intrinsic things. These are disordered loves when they're the intrinsic goal. They should be an instrumental goal to the four things that truly do bring lasting satisfaction. And this is as an empirical matter. This is not a theological point. I'm not a theologian. That's above my pay grade. I'm a, I'm a simple you know, blue collar PhD social scientist. And, and I can tell you that if you boil the ocean of 10,000 research articles, you'll find the happiest people, they pursue four things every day, faith, family, friendship, and work that serves others. In other words, love, 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 and more love.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Along that point with relationships, I mean, you even have argued just that, that happiness is love. And even that the people who are healthiest at 80 are the people who are the most satisfied with their relationships at 50, and yet we are in such a lonely time, you know, which certainly has been exacerbated by, but also precedes the pandemic that we're in. We spend just as a people far more time on social media, shouting at each other, even though what we presumably really crave and really would make us happier is to spend time connecting with other people. And I thought about this sort of phenomenon and what, you know, the apostle Paul said, which is, you know, for what I want not to do, I do, but I I hate what I do. Just, you know, the paradox of persistently, even habitually engaging in the very kind of behaviors that destroy not only our soul, but even our happiness. And so what's going on here as a, so, as a social, social scientist? What yeah. are we doing and why do we do this?
1: Yeah, the Apostle Paul was an astoundingly good psychologist. And you know, just all you need to know about the paradoxes of human behavior, you can get from Romans 13. It's my goodness. It's like, not only do we sin, we plan to sin. And then we do it and we're miserable about it. My goodness, what complicated creatures we are. It really, once again, has to do with the fact that Mother Nature does not have your happiness at heart. You know, we are a fallen species in a fallen world as a, as a theological matter, but as a social scientist, we actually find that there's, there's nothing in, in the study of, of neuroscience or social science that would indicate that we are driven toward happiness or that we sexually select or naturally select on happiness. Evolution doesn't even smile on happiness per se necessarily. It's a, it's a nice to have as far as Darwin would be concerned. We have to be all about that ourselves and bring that to other people, which of course is one of the great blessings of life, that that we're not wired toward the best thing, that we can bring the best thing through our own free will, that we can transcend ourselves by bringing the best thing to others. This is a a wonderful thing about gift giving per se, is that it has to be a free act and, and one of grace. And so that's actually what we find in social science and not, by the way, it's not a big coincidence that social science always actually goes to the same place that scripture got to a really really long time ago
2: yeah well let me ask you a little bit about friendship because in some ways you are in the demographic that in some ways struggles the most with it you know apparently yeah. middle-aged men especially those who have been overachievers early in life are among those who most are most likely to report that they're their best friend is their wife, and there really aren't many other friends. Yeah. Uh, and yet, the need, whether or not it's a felt need, the need is apparently quite great. So, you mentioned different habits. What practical advice would you offer to old older people who realize that, you know, say their friendships are either few or with positions rather than people.
1: Yeah. So this is absolutely right. You find that strivers really struggle when it comes to human connection. And the reason for that is actually something that I explain not just to older people, but to younger people as well. My class at Harvard is for MBA students at, at the Harvard Business School, and they're average age 27. And I say, look out, because the world wants you to have a lot of deal friends and does not care if you have real friends. Now, this is a really Aristotelian concept. Aristotle talked in the Nicomachean ethics about the types of friendships. And at the lowest level are what he called transactional friendships. These are deal friends. At the highest level are the perfect friendships, the virtuous friendships. These are the real friendships. And what do have virtuous friendships have in common? He says that they're atelic. Now, the atelic is the opposite of telic from the telos, which is purposeful. And so the best friendships are sort of, you could say they're, they're cosmically useless. They involve a shared love for a third thing. You don't need your best best friend. My my closest friend lives in Atlanta. His name is Frank Hanna. He's he's a, a fellow Christian like me. I just love him so much. He doesn't need me for business. I don't need him for business. We sometimes do business together as nothing more than a transparent pretext to talk about things and be together. It's just an excuse to be with my my beautifully useless Christian friend. And that's what they really have in common. So this is what I tell my students. I say, look, the Harvard Business School is helping you fill out your Rolodex with connections. Deal friend, deal friend, deal friend. Do not get to my age incapable of making real friendships and not remembering how it's done in the first place. You need to bring your practice to real friendships, because if you do not, you will be bereft of the love that you need. And this is one of the key practices, the key seven practices of people who get on the upper branch of happiness in the second half of life is that they have a lot or enough, at least enough real friendships.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some of those practices. And you also offer a bit of hope to those who are kind of engaging in some of those practices that there's actually even a As one's kind of sharpness or processing speed declines, there's hope because there's a different intellectual or cognition curve as well as happiness curve. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, as well as some of the interesting practices that you have recommended, including such counterintuitive ones as meditating on death.
1: Yeah. So the first big practice that's really important for people to recognize is they go from, and it's called from strength to strength, obviously taken from the 84th Psalm. It's an ancient Judaic blessing. It's in Hebrew, may you go from strength to strength. You got to know how to do that. It's one thing to say it. It's something else to have the skills to do it. And this actually gets back to a deep area of both psychology and neuroscience about the two types of geniuses. Now in the middle part of the 20th century, people started to recognize that there seemed to be two types of geniuses out there. The young ones and the old ones, the early bloomers and the late bloomers. And the early bloomers, they had a certain kind of genius of analytic capacity and and, and speed of cognition. They could figure things out faster than other people. They could focus longer, they could work harder. The second type of genius came much later and they just had a lot of wisdom. They were the ones who could look at the, the landscape understand immediately what it meant, combine the facts together, describe them, and teach them to other people with lightning speed. So you've got your Elon Musk geniuses, and you've got your Dalai Lama geniuses, basically is what it comes down to. Now, later on, what we figured out, the the reason that this, that was interesting, but what makes it useful is the fact that it turns out we all have both. Each one of us has both. Now, I don't have Elon Musk's brains or the Dalai Lama's wisdom, but, but I got something. And I have an ability to to think quickly and to work harder when I'm younger and have the ability to develop my wisdom and become a teacher when I'm older. And these are two types of curves. The first is called the fluid intelligence curve, which increases through your 20s and your early 30s and starts to decrease in your late 30s through your 40s. The second curve is called your crystallized intelligence curve, your Dalai Lama, your wisdom, your master teacher curve that increases through your 40s and 50s and stays high through your 60s and 70s and 80s, and even beyond if God gives you your marbles. This is critically important to remember because the second curve, the second success curve, the crystallized intelligence curve, many people don't even know they have it. And so they're fighting and struggling and and striving and panicking about staying on that old curve that's declining, not realizing that the better curve lays ahead of them. If they could just let go of the first and have the faith to jump, to have the faith to jump onto the second curve, to retool themselves, their interests, their abilities. You don't have to quit your career. You simply have to see yourself differently and to cultivate those skills. The second curve is more satisfying, brings more happiness, and ultimately can give you even more worldly success than the first one. But you got to go there first, and that's the first big skill. Yeah.
2: So let's talk about some of the practices you recommend because they are clearly geared towards the second curve rather than the first one. And, you know, in particular, so much of early success in life, it is about acquisition, achievement, winning, domination. And instead, one of the practices that you recommend is to make weakness your strength. What do you mean? And why does that encourage happiness?
1: Well, to begin with, it's incredibly counterintuitive because we're taught early on in our And our our general intuition, our evolved intuition is to only emphasize our strengths and not to emphasize our weaknesses. That makes sense if you're basically trying to dominate to win a particular competition. You don't come out of the gate as a football player and say, my knee hurts today, so don't hit me there. I mean, that's that's not actually how you're going to win the football game. But the truth of the matter is that for us to be ultimately successful as people, we need to connect. We need other people's help. How do you get that? By connecting with them and to actually to stimulate their compassion toward you and us toward them. And the only way you can connect with other people is through defenselessness. The only way you can connect with other people is the fact that you like them have feet of clay. Look, I can say to everybody, hey, I'm a man of the people. You wanna know know evidence of that? I'm a professor at Harvard. I have eviscerated the quality of that message entirely. Look, it's not such a big deal to be a professor at Harvard but it's not an ordinary thing either. And every single one of us on this call has some incredible distinguishing characteristic that is admirable, but not relatable. What's relatable about me? All the ways that I fail, all the ways that I'm weak, all the ways that I'm sad. There's a reason that the greatest entrepreneur in history, the Apostle Paul, I mean, look, you can say it's Steve Jobs, but we'll see how many iPhones are out there in the year 4,000, shall we? You know, the Apostle Paul laying the seeds for this incredible entrepreneurial faith the christian faith is such an entrepreneurial faith because it's like more markets more souls i mean it's wonderful in this way i love it so much and and what did he talk about in my in my weakness i find my strength the thorn in my flesh it's the worst marketing in history hey everybody you want to follow my religion i'm a weak fallen man yeah actually yeah actually This guy who's coming to me with this is just like me. This person who wants to teach me about something beautiful is somebody who has my problems. And so what the great secret of one of some of the happiest people is they can finally relax into the truth of their weakness and stop hiding everything. And they find that they're happier and they're more relatable and they go to their grave actually relaxed maybe for the first time in their whole lives.
2: (laughs) So in the conclusion of your book, you summarize its findings in seven words. And you said this, use things, love people, worship the divine. And in some ways this struck me as almost a restatement of St. Augustine's order of the loves, or even, you know, Jesus's summation of the law to, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. But you're obviously writing this book for a broad audience and a secular audience, not a faith-based one. And so what do you say when you're asked, why is worship essential for a happy life?
1: <laughs> worship is inevitable in every life. The, the great philosopher and writer, David Foster Wallace, who is not one of us in faith, he, he had this in, in, insightful comment at one point where he said, all people worship something. That's very insightful because it's, it's absolutely true that we actually see in in. in all of anthropology, all of social sociology. It's a psychological truism. It's not just an empirical regularity. We always look to the transcendental. The great social psychologist, Abraham Maslow, not a believer mm-hmm. in the 1940s, he put together his hierarchy of needs. And this is early on in his career. And he said that you know people will pursue food and shelter. And then when they get that, then they'll start looking for security. And then when they get that, they'll start looking for belonging and community. And then then at the highest pinnacle is self-actualization. And he lived with that for a long time, but as an older man, he said, that's not right. That's not the pinnacle. The pinnacle is ultimately when people, they look for the truth, they look for transcendence, which is the same thing as David Foster Wallace saying that everybody worships something. So we got to choose. You know, you can worship something not worthy of worship or you can worship something that is worthy of worship. And that's the point. The unhappiest people, they have this formula and the formula is, it's sort of like Aquinas' idols. They have a little bit of divinity in them, but they're counterfeit. And the counterfeit formula from the world that comes from the limbic system of your brain and also from the advertising that you see and all these stimuli, it basically says, love things, use people, and worship yourself. That's what the, what the culture tells us. And it's not capitalism. It's not any of that stuff. It's the human brain and all of human secular life. The beautiful thing is that you can just transpose basically the verbs and the nouns to get a divine formula that it takes a lot of work. And the devil's in the details, as they say. That's why I wrote a 75,000 word book and not just seven words. But the formula that we can, that we can follow, that I encourage my, my students to follow, is use things, love people, and worship the divine, worship God. Now, (laughs) when I say this, it's really important to recognize that there's nothing wrong with using things. The the abundance of the world, to, to, to subdue the world, to enjoy the world. What a beautiful thing it is. But don't love it. Your car is not worthy of love. Your boat is not worthy of love. Your beach house, your clothes. By the way, Your political opinions are not worthy of love. These are just more worldly attachments. People are worthy of love. And the way that you love the Lord is through worship. And this is the transcendent formula. This is the truly, as a social scientist, I say this not as a Christian, that is the formula for happiness.
2: Yeah, Arthur, this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you coming on. The last word is yours.
1: You know, the last word that that I think should come from the mouth of any Christian social scientist is one that we've learned and that you've quoted before from the Lord. Um, when a Pharisee asked the Lord, you know, look, the Ten Commandments, it's a lot to remember, Lord, boil it down for me. He said, okay, fine. Love God and love your neighbor. And then 300 years later, when, when 350 years later, when St. Augustine said, was asked, you know, look, even those two, give it to me simpler. He said, love and do what you will. So let me paraphrase it in the terms that we've been talking about here, which is the search for happiness. All of the data, all of your heart and your grandmother's wisdom comes together in one basic truism, which is that happiness is love.
0: Full stop.
2: Thank you, Arthur. And thank you to all of you for joining us.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on living wisely and well. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.